So I'm frustrated today. Ah, I'm sorry to hear that. Why? So I'll tell you. Uh, so why is it that in photography, we use macro lenses to make small things appear big, but in science, we use microscopes for that? Uh, I think I might know where you're going with this. Did I wonder if Rick Moranis ever thought about this when making Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Uh, nope, not exactly. I was thinking that in economics, macroeconomics means big things and microeconomics means small things. So what's going on here? Actually, maybe I don't know where you're going with this. I think I just want some certainty around prefixes, maybe. And so it just feels like when I say that on today's show, we're going to look at the housing market from a macroeconomic perspective, it could also just as well mean that we're going to look at it from a microeconomic perspective. Or we could just say that Sam Cater's back as our guest, and it's going to be a ton of fun. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. We've got a great show today. Freddie Mac Chief Economist Sam Cater is back with us to talk about a few macro and micro economic trends in the housing market today and some of the implications for rental housing. Sam, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, uh, so many different things that we could talk about, and, and I look forward on hitting on a bunch of them. But I know that uh, as you and I have talked about things over the years, um, you know, going into the recession, there was a lot of talk about urbanization and people to, moving to the inner core. Um, uh, Post uh, pandemic, I think that we're seeing some of those opposite effects. I think we there's you know questions about migration. Um, I think that you, you may have done some work on this recently. Can, can you um, speak to that to start out with? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, we've had a suburban rebound in uh, population growth and, and migration. If we rewind back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a, the early beginnings of a, a re-urbanization in many cities. And that really played its way through the mid-2010s or so. But it really began to reverse as many cities began to get very expensive. And uh, many people began to uh, look outside of the city center for their uh, real estate location. And so the growth in suburbs was already well underway and happening prior to the pandemic, but uh, post-pandemic really accelerated quite a bit. And I think that, you know, as we've talked about this, the, a, a lot of people have kind of talked about this at a high level. I think one of the things, and, and it might be like, uh, as Corey said, some micro analysis, but you're able to get a hold of some of our data and look at kind of trends in, in that in terms of like, uh, as people get a new mortgage, like where did they come from and, uh, and those sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. So we 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 uh, have traced the movements of home buyers, whether they are first time buyers or repeat buyers, by looking at their current address and their intended address, and we've looked at that uh, post pandemic and uh, uh, pre pandemic. And when you look at post pandemic, again, this is sort of along the micro analysis, we have noticed uh, both an outflow out of large, expensive cities uh, such as San Jose. San Jose actually leads the way in terms of the most out-migration. Um, San Francisco, LA, New York, Honolulu, San Diego. So, you know, you know sort of coastal, expensive uh, markets. Um, and at the same time, we've also seen an inflow into uh, either interior markets or uh, secondary coastal markets. So the secondary coastal markets have actually experienced the most um, 
inflow, and they include markets like Myrtle Beach, uh, Port Saint uh, Port Saint Lucie, Florida, Salisbury, Maryland, right out of, uh, right outside of DC, Sarasota, uh, Cape Coral. Um, what's also interesting is uh, quite a few larger interior markets have had a large inflow of folks, and they include markets, affo- very affordable markets like Atlanta, Dallas, and Riverside. And what's really interesting about Riverside and, and also the Central Valley, we've seen a lot of uh, influx of uh, migrants from L.A., uh, San Diego, and San Francisco into Riverside and into the other uh, uh, Central Valley, California markets, which are much more affordable. And again, this was uh, you know something that was already happening, uh, but it really accelerated and, and was really turbocharged uh, in the post-pandemic. And, and there really hasn't been a slowdown in the inflow to these markets. Um, but the outflow out of the expensive markets has has sort of hit the floor, but it hasn't hasn't uh, recovered yet. So so we're sort of, um, and this data, this kind of analysis is as of uh, uh, June, July time period of 2021. And so and so the outflow has sort of hit the the bottom. Um, the inflow continues to increase because the inflow in many of these markets is actually the, the markets that they're flowing into are smaller than the markets they're flowing out. So, Sam, one aspect of this that is kind of interesting, um, you know, on the one hand, maybe not too surprising as, as people look for less crowded places and, and now those places are becoming more crowded. But, um, you know, are, are we seeing a change in employment as well? Or, or do we think that this has something to do with just, uh, you know, maybe more virtual schooling from last year, more more virtual work from last year uh, and continuing into this year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a mix of both. I think what will be really interesting is to see where these trends play out in the fall and into the spring of, of uh, uh, next year. If we look at job postings at Indeed, they have showed a pronounced increase in uh, postings that are looking for remote uh, employees. And so clearly many uh, employers have already began to uh, um, adjust for a, cha- a sort of a permanent shift in the location of uh, employees. And so this is not just a, I think, a demand side um, sort of issue by um, uh, employees in terms of what they're look- looking for, but also employers as well. I mean, I think they see that there are benefits to having remote employees and the savings that they have. Um, and it's not even just the real estate, but all the other ancillary services uh, that they have for employees that are co-located on 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 campus. Uh, there's been some research that indicates about a third of Americans can work um, remotely and it's even higher in uh, some of the most densities, dense cities in the U.S., such as New York or San Francisco. Um, the research estimates about half of all employees in these cities can work remotely. So, so um, the 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 potential for this to be sort of a radical shift, I think, is is is, is pronounced I- even after the pandemic recedes. So, what what do you see happening in these markets uh, where people are moving? Uh, what's happening with affordability, with house prices, uh, and, and generally the ability for those markets to support this uh, inflow of people? Yeah, they're they're seeing record home price increases. I mean, we're seeing record home price increases uh, nationally, but in in places like Boise um, and some of the other Rocky Mountain states, which have also been popular for. Um, uh, those that are migrating out of the West Coast, in, in particular, you're seeing home price increases in excess of 35 percent year over year, which is substantial. 
Um, and so, and, and the, the problem for many of these markets is that they're just not that large, A. B, they didn't have that much supply to begin with even before the pandemic began because they had been hot. Um, and also C, uh, the builders cannot keep up with the demand. And you're starting to see anecdotally um, sort of um, uh, a, a lot of uh, resentment by local residents, by all the incoming uh, folks that are driving up prices and making sort of traffic Worse, so so you're sort of almost seeing this the 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 importation of the type of behavior that you see in the coastal markets in in the in terms of the anti uh, sort of uh, uh, construction NIMBY type behavior in places that have plenty of land. I think that this is uh, really interesting. I, I I love how you're able to pull you know internal Freddie Mac data and get really down to the the granular levels as we talked about. Then then um, it's so great how you point to the Indeed data and then the house price data. All of this like really. Um, you know, data-driven kind of responses, which is fantastic. The the um, affordability issues that so you know uh, certainly as uh, before prices started going up so much, the, the the rates were going down, right? So which which drove so much uh, additional, in addition to the you know people being able to work remotely and be in different places, they were they were finding very low mortgage rates. Um, uh, as you think about. Um, that do you, do you think that uh, um, basically markets of you know the folks that have been able to find homes have done so or you know it, the, the markets are you know inventory is gone and, and even if rates are low um, we can't see as many transactions or, or what do you see as as we think about transactions in the single family market going forward yeah I mean I think I think we've hit a wall um, and and uh, for a couple of reasons one is they we've just run out of inventory. Uh, home sales have declined by about three quarters of a million over the past uh, seven to eight months or so this year. Um, but inventory has only risen about a couple hundred um, thousand. And, and also, I think there's buyer fatigue in terms of the run up in, in, in prices in combination with the lack of inventory. I, I think many home buyers would be willing to um, uh, purchase a home, even if they thought it was a bit inflated and above their um, their uh, budget, if it was the ideal home. But I, I think the problem now is with the lack of inventory in combination in context of the, the much higher prices has really caused potential buyers to sort of be a bit, a bit wary. Um, however, having said that, Home sales remain, uh, they're running at about 6 million right now, about 500K, half a million above where they were uh, pre-pandemic. And so that, that, that latent demand is there and it's there for a variety of reasons. There's the, you know, the pandemic reasons that we've discussed. But then also you've got demographic reasons. We've got a demographic tailwind coming into the, into the 2020s, uh, particularly in the next few years, the peak age cohort today, uh, the largest age cohort in the U.S. are 30-year-olds. Many of these are renters that will be becoming homeowners. If you look at our first-time homebuyer data, the first-time homebuyer share has been holding steady and even rising a little bit during the pandemic to the mid to high 40s. Historically, that share has been about 30%. So a lot of this demand is coming from first-time homebuyers who are the most price sensitive, um, but yet they're still in the market. But I think I think the lack of inventory is by far the biggest obstacle um, in, in, in the market uh, today. And anecdotally, we, you know, you hear stories all the time that, that many home buyers are still snapping up whatever they can. It's just at this uh, accelerated pace of 
home price growth in uh, for a particular home that might not be their ideal. I think this is where you get sort of this phenomenon where home buyers start to sort of get frustrated and, and may put, put put their search on pause. Do you see any cases or, or can you see in the data over time that like maybe early on certain cities were seeing a, a bigger influx of people and then that city dropped off and another one was sort of catching up and, and taking the lead? We have, yeah. In, in, initially, uh, uh, the demand really went to uh, sort of uh, 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 second home markets. So really, the the initially we saw a spurt of demand into New England and into the coastal air, coastal Atlantic uh, areas. In fact, we actually did a deep dive on New York City, and we, we looked at the number one markets that they were flowing out to, and it was the Hudson Valley was the number one uh, market. Uh, number two was New England. And then, uh, and then, uh, kind of three, four, five, Philadelphia, Miami, and sort of the coastal Atlantic um, area. Um, but since then, the, the demand has sort of shifted to sort of uh, sort of more permanent locations uh, and larger markets like your Atlantas and your Dallases and, and, and your Riverside. So I think initially, I think, and I think that makes sense. If you think about it, initially, most folks weren't sure how long this was going to take, but they knew they were going to be working remote for a while. And those with the means and, and, and the ability to do it sort of took advantage of it and went to these remote locations. But as more time has passed by and the potential for uh, these arrangements to become more permanent, uh, I think they began to seek more viable um, sort of alternatives because for many people, while they they may want more um, space and more amenities, I think still many want to still be tethered to some kind of um, uh, more central location um, versus the second home markets, which can uh, the amenities can be rather sparse. And um, you know, I think that through through all of your answers so far, there's been you know a discussion of almost every kind of market and you know different kind of geographies and uh, and I think that certainly uh, circling back to affordability that we touched on just before, affordability is becoming an issue everywhere. Um, but uh, as you th- as you think about these things that are happening everywhere, there's also kind of a difference between, as you said, there's you know 30 percent that can that can you know work remotely. Um, but there's, you know, people at the at the top of the income spectrum, you know, uh, and then, you know, on further down. Um, how do you see the, the effects, you know, kind of across uh, the population? Yeah. So what, what's interesting is that, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, the m- migration w- was heavily driven by lower middle income um, home buyers moving to more affordable southern and southwestern. Markets and that remains in play, n- no doubt. Uh, and so these are the markets that we all uh, know about: markets like Vegas and Phoenix and San Antonio. San Antonio has really picked up lately relative to Dallas and Houston and Austin. I mean, Dallas, particularly, you know, Austin's been hot for a while. Uh, Dallas as well. San Antonio has really picked up um, lately. And so they've been, you know, they had been. Many of these borrowers and buyers had been moving for affordability. Uh, and that contrasts with, if you think about sort of prior to about the 1980s or 1970s, most Americans moved for opportunity, right? They, they moved to seek to increase their incomes and to seek better job opportunities. But that really began to change in the, in the eighties and, and nineties. And now more people move for affordability. What's really interesting is what's happened since the pandemic is that the migration by upper income households really increased. And if you look at our internal Freddie Mac data, 
the typical homebuyer income really leapt by about twenty to twenty-five thousand or so during the pandemic, and it's 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 eased a little bit since then, but it remains inflated. Um, and so that really indicates the uh, that the folks that are purchasing and jumping into the market and moving are the are more recently have been ones who have who are a bit more uh, affluent than in the past. And what's the effect of that on the markets they're leaving? Uh, you know, thinking specifically of you know those whose jobs rely upon the the presence of higher income earners downtown. You know, going to lunch every day, shopping at the store. Yeah, Corey, that's a great question. Very open question. So I'll, I'll talk about that. And maybe talk a little bit about where they're going to and the impact there, because that's also really interesting um, as well. And so th- this is, I think, one of the n- number one questions from an urban geography perspective. If you think about many of the places in America, particularly in the in sort of in the in the in the Midwest, that have lost their economic engines and really struggled to bounce back, very few. Have I, I'm not worried about these affluent gateway cities that we talked about before that are seeing a, a massive outflow like New York and San Francisco and San Jose. I think those will always be popular. They are the most affluent, most productive cities in the U.S. And I think they'll always attract people, but they are going to be some losers. And I think those that are focused on or the, those that have jobs in service industries that service the affluent are going to be the one, or they're the ones that have struggled the most. We know that's the case. The issue is, can they follow those jobs? And I think the short answer right now in the short term is no, because in many of the, well, first there are, you know, frictions and transaction costs for these people can't just pick up and leave, A. But then also, B, in terms of if they want to move uh, to these uh, uh, places where many of these migrants are moving to, there's there's no place for them to live, right? There's very little um, rental stock, very little, um, a f- uh, for sale stock for them to purchase. And so in a sense, they're locked out. They, you know, maybe they want to follow, maybe they do have the means to follow the more affluent that, that are moving to your Salt Lake cities and your Denver's. Um, but the, the housing stock just isn't, uh, isn't there for them. And so that's a major, major issue. And we have to think, I think from a policy perspective, how, how do, what, what do we do with those that are, uh, that, that, um, that may be hurt by this potential opportunity which can be helpful to some people. On the flip side of it, the, the other flip side of it is that um, when you've got these folks that are affluent and moving into uh, into smaller and secondary uh, markets and even non-secondary markets like in Austin or, or in Nashville, which have been red hot for a while, is they you know th- this in- increase in incremental demand by affluent um, uh, buyers can really drive up prices uh, quite a bit higher. And so you get this phenomenon where you get out-of-town buyers that really drive up prices for the locals, and it causes sort of this tension between those that are coming in and are, and are the new residences, uh, residents versus the uh, local residents that have lived there for a while. And, and this is a major issue because if you think about um, many of the interior parts of the country has have served as a release valve for the lack of affordability on the coast, uh, but many of these uh, amenity-laden interior markets uh, that have been hot for a while have gotten unaffordable. So, you know, I'm thinking of your Nashvilles and your Austins and your Boises. And, and now it's spread out into, you know, other uh, secondary markets in the Rocky Mo- Mountains like a Cheyenne or a Coeur d'Alene um, that have really begun to kind of increase uh, in terms of their inflow uh, uh, because, because the folks that uh, initially were targeting a Boise uh, can't go there, and so they'll go to other Idaho markets, and the same with, in, you know, in Wyoming or, or Montana. 
Um, and so, and so, and that spillover, um, uh, effect, you, you don't need a lot of, you know, these are such small markets. You, it doesn't take a lot for them to get overwhelmed in terms of the outflow from some of the, these other larger markets. So one aspect of this that's also interesting. So when you run out of homes to buy, um, what does the rental market look like? Uh, and and single family rental comes to mind. You know, it, certainly if you're if you're looking for a single family home and and uh, maybe can't uh, can't find one to buy, what, what's the rental stock like there? What changes are you seeing in the single family rental market? Yeah, it's actually really interesting because there was initially, um, you know, the single family rental market cooled off. Uh, a fair amount, um, uh, but has uh, but began to stabilize in early to mid 2021, and then over the last few months has really gotten uh, red hot. And you're seeing single family rents uh, increase to the highest rates in the last couple of decades, which is as far back as the data uh, uh, go back. So you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, rental rates were running in a three and a half to four percent range. Today, they're running in a seven and a half to eight percent. Uh, year over year uh, growth rate, so that's very high. So it's the lack of inventory is not just in the for sale mar- market, but has clearly spilled over into the uh, rental market as well. And so you're seeing sort of affordability issues, not it, only in the for sale side, but also on the rental side, because purely, as you said, we just don't have enough homes available to occupy. And you can see this in other ways. You know, if you look at the vacancy rate for homeowners or the ra- vacancy rate. For renters, they're both very low, um, and so we just simply don't have enough enough homes for for uh, people to live in. So, one one last question on on sort of the market and, and migration, uh, and you talked a, a lot about you know maybe secondary markets, but are you also seeing a shift to the more rural markets? Are we starting to see some uh, population growth again in, in some rural markets? Yeah, we are. And, and again, it's one of those things, uh, it's just like the suburban market. We were already seeing a r- rural rebound prior to the pandemic, and it's accelerated um, since then. Uh, it is concentrated around exurban metro markets. So, so for example, if you look at the, uh, the first ring outside of a metro market, that's where a lot of this rural demand is happening. Um, and, and also it is happening even within metro areas. So there are different ways you can define rural. Uh, I think most people, when they think of a metro area, they, or, uh, they don't think of, um, it as being rural, but there are rural, um, uh, neighborhoods within a metropolitan area. And those places have also, uh, become, uh, much more active in terms of the demand post pandemic. They were already becoming more popular prior to the pandemic, but post-pandemic, the demand for these uh, rural areas that are within metro areas have also become more popular. So you, you've talked a lot about um, you know, home price growth, uh, rent growth. Um, you know, how does that fit into sort of? You know, there's there's been that broader discussion of inflation now over the past year, and how, how do these things tie together? So there's actually a, a very high correlation um, when you look at the price of goods. Um, in the U.S. economy, uh, particularly when you think about dur- durables, and, and if you think about autos and housing, are sort of the, the really the um, most per- pertinent example. And you're seeing the same uh, dynamics: strong demand, uh, particularly as more people move out <laughs> further out, and as more people move further out, their demand for transportation, particularly for cars, has uh, has increased, and so. Uh, 
car sales increased dramatically to record uh, uh, levels in uh, early 2021, but also hit a wall in terms of inventory. Uh, Inventories for autos right now are at record lows and they are not getting any better. In fact, they're still getting worse because of uh, additional complications that we find in autos um, that are not necessarily uh, impacting housing in the same way, though they are, but not in the same way. A lot of it has to do with uh, uh, semiconductors and and the sort of the global um, uh, trade uh, chain, which has really struggled uh, with uh, with COVID and continues to uh, right now. In fact, the, with the Delta variant really hitting uh, China, uh, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Korea, uh, that's really impacted. Um, the imports, uh, the, the materials, and, and sort of uh, uh, a lot of the, the supply chain for autos. And so uh, that led uh, car sales to, or excuse me, car prices, uh, particularly for used cars, also for new as well, but especially for uh, used cars to increase dramatically. And, and in fact, that's the single biggest driver of the increase in inflation. It's led um, uh, inflation to uh, partly led inflation to run up to over five five uh, percent uh, year over year before the pandemic began. Inflation was running at about two two and a half percent. Besides uh, autos uh, and housing, and, and the impact of housing on inflation is is a bit more muted. And I think will occur more in later 2021 and 20, uh, 2022. Uh, and it's, this is because of the way housing inflation is measured within the government inflation uh, uh, data, uh, where there's a, it's, it actually the changes in home prices and changes in rents uh, impact these uh, government inflation indices with a bit of a lag from anywhere from six to 12 months uh, uh, due to the way the government records the inform, uh, the price information for uh, rental and, and for sale, sale market. Um, the other uh, main driver besides those two sort of goods in inflation has been the, um, the uh, industries that are rapidly reopening. Uh, so uh, airlines, hotels, uh, they had a, a, a pronounced increase in fares and in, in, in hotel uh, prices as the economy began to open up. Now, both of those segments have cooled down recently within the past few weeks, but for the prior uh, three or four months, they had uh, also been incrementally adding to inflation. But really beyond that, what's really interesting, you know, the inflation is the number one story in the economy today, and I think, you know, rightfully so. But when you look at, you know, beyond uh, autos, housing, and, and the uh, segments of the market that are segments of the market that are reopening, Inflation uh, is still moving sideways for the bulk of the goods and services that are out there. They're still running in that two to three percent range, but the but the outliers, uh, uh, again, the ones that I mentioned, have really dragged up the the overall official figure up to about five percent. But but the bulk of goods and services in the U.S. are not seeing a dramatic increase in inflation, at least not yet. Oh, that that's fascinating. And just thinking about. Like this, this past year and a half, and and everything you you've said today just demonstrates how interconnected things are that you don't necessarily think about uh, on a, on a daily basis. Uh, but going back to to housing and uh, inflation, one of the big stories over the last year was the dramatic increase in lumber, uh, in lumber futures and, and lumber prices. How how is that playing out now, and how is that tying into uh, supply? Is that is that easing off a little bit? It has eased off uh, some. Uh, it remains elevated to uh, pre-pandemic levels, though it's been very volatile. I, I will say, just like many other commodity 
prices that are also important to uh, housing, like copper. You know, copper is uh, really important, and and some other um, sort of materials prices have have also gone up for houses. But really, for how houses, the the really the biggest driver for on the new construction market in terms of prices are the uh, the prices of lots, um, and they increased last year by about twenty percent. Uh, which is the largest rise over the past couple of decades, um, um, and and the reason that land prices are important is is that that's the you know uh, as they sort of say uh, they don't make it anymore right versus these other uh, goods uh, you can always make other things but they don't make land anymore and you've got a finite um, uh, supply and uh, still demand in urban markets for land and so lot prices have really risen uh, quite a bit and so. Uh, that's still the the bulk of the driver for the run up in new home prices, uh, but what's made it worse is the run up in materials costs, as as you've outlined. So so many things that that we've covered, and I feel like there there's got to be just one more that's factoring in and, and tying this all together. So I think one really um, un, um, uh, under discussed topic is the slowdown in population growth, and this this sort of runs the other way in terms of. Uh, the impact on on housing and and maybe uh, a topic for a future podcast. But if we look at po- you know population growth is now at the slowest rate since the 1930s and the second slowest rate since um, the late 1700s. And this is a you know a, a big deal longer term for the vibrancy and the health of the economy. I mean, if you look uh, to Japan, one of the main reasons they've had much slower economic growth is they've had much slower population growth. A lot of the economic growth that you see out there is really, and very simply, due to the growth in demand and the growth in labor supply. And if the growth rate of those two uh, decrease, then the basically the, the 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 speed at which the economy grows, the speed limit, will slow down quite a bit. And so. We are we've we've seen slower population growth even prior to the pandemic, uh, and it was actually uh, fairly dramatic. The decline was fairly dramatic, and, and and again related to housing. It seems like a lot of things are related to housing. Uh, there's been some work that illustrates that fertility rates are tied are tied to affordability, housing affordability, um, and so we've seen a dramatic slowdown prior to the pandemic in the population growth. It's really slowed down quite a bit more. Due to the pandemic, a combination of uh, uh, further decline in birth rates and a shift in, in immigration uh, policy, and while it's you know it's only a short time period that this has been occurring. Well, well, let me step back for a second. The the slowdown in population growth has been happening for several decades, but but the pronounced slowdown over the last few years has been a shorter time period, and then especially post pandemic. Uh, the issue is where do we go from here and uh, should we address it uh, from a policy perspective? But I, I think this is a longer term issue that we should be thinking about. So many great things that we learned today, Sam. Definitely there's short term factors and this is a, a huge long term factor. And, uh, and you've really touched on them all well. And I really appreciate your being here today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having me uh, on your show. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.